Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest this week is Mick Kirsten. Mick is the Chief Executive Officer of TaskTop and the author of the book, Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. The book focuses on how companies that master large-scale software delivery will define the economic landscape of the 21st century in the same way that masters of mass production defined it in the 20th century. Because business and technology leaders are often ill-equipped to solve the problems posed by digital transformation, he cites that at this rate of disruption, half of the S&P 500 companies will be replaced in the next 10 years, but suggests a new approach. In this interview, we discuss insights from Mick's book, the massive IT productivity discrepancies between digitally native organizations and legacy enterprises, the economic impact of technological revolutions, and how and why companies must shift from project orientation to product orientation. We also discuss why IT executives must measure the value they create and not simply if they deliver initiatives on time and on budget, the importance and shortcomings of traditional project management, what legacy enterprises can learn from both startups and tech giants, and a variety of other topics. Mick Kirsten, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. It's great to be here today, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Mick, um, I, I thought we would begin with uh, your book, Project to Product. Um, it's a, a terrific read and reflective of uh, some of what I've also been seeing in terms of the migration of a lot of organizations towards a product orientation where they once had a project project orientation, at least in, in, in those relevant areas, and wanted to delve into that a little bit more deeply. Uh, in your book, you note, Mastering large-scale software delivery will define the economic landscape of the 21st century, just as mass production defined the landscape in the 20th. Um, why is that? Maybe you can provide that as kind of the, the starting point or launching point for the conversation. Absolutely. So my history with learning software and the impact of software you know, started with my career as a developer. And, and I noticed this really odd discrepancy as I saw the productivity and the way that uh, open source developers and teams worked, that was really my background as a, as a researcher and an open source developer uh, in the 20 years ago. And in, I started then studying larger organizations. I actually started doing, I did my uh, PhD thesis on understanding how large scale software value streams work, basically how organizations deliver value through software through then developers writing code and so on. And I just started seeing this, this really massive difference between the productivity of highly effective organizations and enterprise organizations that were trying to go through digital transformation. And I was starting to see that this, the discrepancy is not that one is two times more productive or 50% more productive. I was actually seeing data as I was studying this using some of our, you know, my company's tools and, and research methodologies I was using at the time. And it was looking to me like we, we were seeing productivity discrepancies of a hundred or a thousand. And so I thought there's something very strange going on. How can you have one organization uh, have 10 developers that are as productive as 10,000 in another? How can that be possible? How can Google have, say, a hundred people working on search, which is a pretty important thing to Google, 
and a bank have 10,000 or 100,000 developers who appear to be delivering less. And, and banks actually will, you know, larger banks will have up to 100,000 IT staff. So I realized there was something really strange going on. And my, my really close colleague and one of my inspirations, Gene Kim, introduced me to the work of Dr. Claude Perez. This was all happening while I was reading, um, as, as, as reading about this and, and actually writing the book, Project the Product. And her work introduced these five long technological revolutions, the Industrial Revolution, the Age of Steam and Railways, Age of Steel and Heavy Engineering, Age of Oil and Mass Production, now the Age of Software and Digital. And the fascinating thing was that each of these ages had this boom where some new means of production became cheap and easy to scale. And all this financial capital then pours in, right? This was Detroit back in the early 1900s. Henry Ford, uh, masters, mass, you know, basically kicks off mass production. And then you actually end up, not many years later, with over 300 car startups in Detroit alone, in that one city alone. And you get this massive boom. Then what happens, interestingly, is you end up with with 1929, the Great Depression, and all of a sudden, uh, everything changes. And this is what Carlotta Paris calls the turning point. There's this installation period in the age of mass production in every one of these technological revolutions, then this turning point. And through that turning point, some companies survive, but most are decimated, most decline and die. And that's exactly what happened with all of those car companies, not just in Detroit, um, but other manufacturers across the world. And somehow, some of these new masters of production, uh, they not only survive the experience, they start thriving. And the things that they learn, of course, back then, it was, it was really lean, right? The 1930 introduction of the, the Toyota way and what became lean manufacturing that allowed first Toyota and then others who picked up the methodologies and practices of Toyota to actually scale production and to become the new incumbent. And this has happened in every one of these ages. And looking at Perez's models, I realized, wow, is this exactly what's going on? Um, we've had the age of software really since the nine, early 1970s and processors for the last 50 years. Perez's models indicate these, these cycles happen about every 50 years. Um, what I'm seeing every single day, I'm out there at a customer enterprise organization meeting with these, these hundreds of IT executives, uh, global 2000 companies over, over the last few years. And, and seeing this discrepancy and this, this massive bubble of their IT spend producing so little that I'm thinking, you know, maybe she's right. Maybe, maybe this bubble will burst. And of course, you know, every single presentation, I, I, I put up a slide that this is coming. If you don't learn the master software at scale, you will not survive this turning point because that kind of waste will not get you through, right? You need to be able to measure value. You need to, you know, get to a place of operational excellence, just like the car manufacturers did uh, at, at the right point in time in order to actually make it through these kinds of large and, and global downturns. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that COVID-19 has actually triggered this, this exact situation. And the question right now is, well, the question for the last, I've been asking companies for the last two years is, how are you going to ensure that your company is one of the ones who survives this, that you're not going to be a victim of the, of the retail apocalypse or whatever the equivalent of that is in your industry. But now, of course, things got much more, um, more urgent for so many organizations who are going to have to deal with, if, again, if, if Carlota Perez's models hold, uh, a nearly depression-sized potentially um, downturn. 
Well, you, you've 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 raised the the downturn that we're at least as we record in the throes of, and maybe, maybe you could take a quick moment and reflect on that a little bit further. I know this is something you've been reflecting on. It's actually something you've been speaking about uh, well before uh, the 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 crisis had a name or a cause. Uh, but I wonder if you can sort of talk talk a bit about some of your your reflections now that we're in the throes of it. Absolutely. So so I think that the interesting thing is that in these which and her models, you basically have this installation period where everyone's scaling, in this case, software production, you know, back in manufacturing, before that, you know, steel and heavy engineering, but everyone's scaling and investing. And all of that investment, it actually does lead to a lot of waste, a lot of organizational waste. Um, again, or companies should not have these multi-billion dollar IT budgets. Um, they're interesting to talk about, but if you think of the fact that one of the stories I described in Project to Product, is seeing a billion dollars at a bank go up in flames on a transformation that delivered either no or negative value because they never measured it for value. The only measure is the project was on time and on budget. And if they hit their cost reduction, value was never being measured. So what's happened is because especially traditional organizations, which are still the largest part of the world economy, they've not learned how to measure or manage to value delivery through software and digital. Uh, they've ended up with tremendous amounts of waste. And of course, you know, there are other bubbles in part of the economy. There's been, you know, we've had a small um, market for a, a long, very long time now. But just in terms of the role of, of project to product, and what I was seeing is uh, companies trying to remain relevant to digital disruption without knowing how to do that. In contrast, by the way, to the tech giants who've got this figured out and they're going to get through this just fine. Right, they will get all of them. Um, we'll get through the, I believe, we'll get through this downturn just fine. They've learned how to measure value, how to innovate, and how to turn uh, dollars, invest their dollars into products, um, uh, and then pivot those products as as the economy, as the market market changes. And it's just been completely different to the companies that were established before the age of software. Those traditional businesses, but those traditional businesses again, they, they formed the largest part of the economy. So the bit of the, the alarmist thing I've been saying for the past couple of years with product to product is if we don't help those companies, you know, tech giants are nice, um, that we can't have an eco economy that's just built on you know, nine or 10 tech giants um, providing all our services. We need a vibrant and diverse economy. We need all of the other companies um, innovating as well. If we don't help them learn those, me those methodologies, those, those ways of working and, and this new way of managing, um, th then so many of of them will fall victim to to this impending turning point. You know, I think I'm not surprised about the fact that you know, the turning point is, has been triggered by COVID-19 as anyone else. But I think the interesting thing is, if you looked at the basically the the kind of spend and the lack of using management principles to to control that those investments in software and technology and digital, um, it's you know what I've been saying is it's it's not surprising that this bubble needs to burst. Although I have to say I'm still surprised at first. Yeah, very interesting. Well, um, let's talk a bit about you, you. You mentioned some of the organizations that were, were born more recently that are oriented from their beginnings uh, towards this and therefore reaping some of the advantages of it. I'd love to talk a bit about some of the companies that you know of, perhaps ones that you've worked with, in fact, who made the transition, those born before the software age, as you said, which are the vast majority of them, who are big and complex and have just a lot of 
legacy fill in the blank, whether that's people practices, processes, technologies, et cetera. And what, what you've seen work well in their transition towards the models you've described. Yes. So, and this is where you know, my whole goal was obviously to give a recipe in the book, Project to Product, to helping those best practices. Fundamentally, so I'll go through what those are, but in the end, it's, and this is the whole goal of, of the flow framework, the, the book introduces and describes the flow framework as a way of measuring and managing value delivery through software value streams, right? So companies know how to manage value through, you know, well, in the last stage, uh, we learned Fordism, right? Um, how to manufacture at scale. In the previous age, we learned Taylorism, um, which is, you know, and scientific management, which is how to break work down into repeatable processes. Um, Gantters and project management were, were really useful tools for planning work and the delivery of value in those ages. Those are tools that are not used by tech startups, um, by, by, by tech giants. Um, these organizations have learned how to innovate in a much more agile and lean. And if you've heard the, the you know, uh, of the concept of, of DevOps, um, in this way of continual feedback flow and, and, and learning. So really the question is, you know, A, what, what are those practices? B, how have they been adopted by the, the companies born in the age of software? Um, be they the, you know, the tech giants, the companies like Microsoft who really started the age of software, uh, and, and which companies, to your question, have uh, have really adopted those new ways of working? So, uh, you know, to start with, the unfortunately, not to, to get to your question, not enough established businesses have adopted this. Um, there, there are absolutely examples, right? In in the book, I go through the long story of BMW and how they actually became one of those companies that survived the last turning point uh, around the Great Depression, right? They are one of the car, the, the car companies that we know. They mastered manufacturing at scale. And what was so fascinating is, I think, having lived those experiences, their CEO two years ago said, we are going to become a software company. We are going to be all, you know, it's going to be around mobility, not just about physical cars. We don't want to be the Foxconn to Apple. We're going to, going to be the one who has the relationship with, with the driver and with the consumer in the form of mobility. So these, a lot of these companies have been adopting some of these practices. And I think the most fundamental one is, and of course, it's, you know, it, it, it's about working backwards and starting backwards from the customers to understand what value you are flowing to the customer. So the whole point of, of you know, software delivery and value streams is that you allow customers to pull value, and this is, this is really based in the manufacturing, um, to pull value from the producer. If you're producing software, no one cares how many releases you make anymore. Um, what they really care is about what value you're delivering in those releases. What's that next feature that's going to delight you, that's going to make you use this product, not that product? Um, is this product safe? Does it respect your privacy? Is it secure? Is it going to breach your data? Um, is this product going to continue evolving? Or will it actually you know, build up too much technical debt over time and you'll start getting disappointed that this, that this digital product um, is, is not innovating as fast as you know one that uh, a competitor is using, for example, or a colleague is using. So the whole goal of the flow framework was to expose those dynamics to business leaders, because software developers, and notably um, the head head of uh, I believe every single tech giant is a former software de developer. 
they understand these dynamics of delivering value incrementally and in a flow-based way through software. Uh, meanwhile, business leaders for established businesses have been using a completely wrong set of managerial tools, you know, back from the age of Taylorism, projects and Gantt charts and org charts. Those allow you, again, to manage costs. They say nothing about how much value you're delivering. They don't allow you to measure value. The whole goal of the flow framework is to give these established businesses, and you know, they are at various stages of adopting this product mindset where you define your product value streams based on what your customers are consuming, um, and then you measure flow. And you measure flow through uh, this, this thing called the flow, you know, called the flow framework. Well, th that's great. I would love to, could, maybe you can provide a bit more of an overview of the, of the flow framework itself and some of what it entails. I, that's a good, good, good precursor to that. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you just a, a really quick overview, and I've tried to make it, again, the, a co this common language, because, of course, both people on the technology side and the business side, they want their companies to survive. They want their companies to thrive. They just need to get on the same page in terms of how they measure and manage that. And the problem is if you've got one, one language and says metrics on the business side uh, that, that comes from finance, and a completely different set of measurement metrics on the technology side, which comes from uh, things like Agile and DevOps that have their own types and styles of metrics, if those things aren't, and which are very useful, by the way, if those things aren't connected, the, the company can't function as one to, to innovate and, um, and to evolve these value streams. And the evidence of this is fascinating, right? Like enterprise IT organizations, they, they have no idea which products to kill, whereas which products to invest in. When they make cuts, they'll make broad-based cuts rather than doubling down and rebalancing where you've got the most value, which is exactly what successful tech companies do. Exactly while you see you know, Google killing products um, very frequently because they actually have a sense of the life cycle profitability of, of this product. They know how to measure not just cost, but also value. So fundamentally, if you take this lean thinking point of view, um, and let's just really quickly revisit the lean principles that, that got companies through the last um, turning point. And they are, from Jim Womack's book, to precisely specify value by product. So you always understand what product you're doing. Customers consume products. Identify the value stream for each product. This is really how you're creating value for your customer free market. Make value flow without interruption and let the customer pull value from the producer. In other words, it's all about, it's not about your internal activities. You know, this is kind of back to re-engineering the corporation stuff. It's, it's all about the pull from the customer. But to do this, you actually need to understand what's being pulled. So the question actually becomes, what flows in software delivery? What, what are you building? What are you trying to optimize the flows for? It's not cars. It's not as simple as, as cars moving down an assembly line. Um, it's, it's some kind of digital asset. And I think people used to think it was releases and builds and how many deployments they could do per day and so on. Um, but it's, that's not the customer-centric point of view. That's not the market-centric point of view. So the flow framework introduces four flow items. And they are features. That's new business value that's pulled by consumers. Those are the things that, you know, the reason we want to get um, that, that, that new app as an example, defects, because sufficiently complex software always has defects. So companies always need to flow defect fixes to their consumers, be that a, you know, a cloud-scale application or something running on your phone. Um, risks. Risks are now a first-class part of software delivery. Security needs to be prioritized, data privacy, compliance, and so on. Um, and debt, and that's this super important concept that every tech company leader, I think, understands of technical debt and that almost no leader who's uh, not been exposed to, to directly to software dynamic has enough of an appreciation for. 
So technical debt is, as you do feature and other work, your technical debt in your software rises from developers taking shortcuts. And if it rises too high, you can never again innovate on that particular product value stream. It becomes a dead end. It becomes, you know, what happened to Netscape um, or other software that it, software that has died. So we, the, these four flow items are what, what flows through software value streams, and they're MISI. They're mutually exclusive and comprehensively exhaustive, which means if you do more of one, you're doing less of another. And unless you actually understand those dynamics, you'll get into these scenarios, like so many companies have, um, where technical debt goes so high because it was never measured at a business level. The business just wanted feature, 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 feature. And all of a sudden, this product value stream is effectively bankrupt, right? You end up with a Nokia scenario, um, as happened with their operating system, versus what Apple and Microsoft were able to pull off. So the whole point is that this is these software value streams, they're, they're, they are a complex dynamic system. But if you measure and the flow from again these flow metrics, for example, flow time how long it takes you to get the value to market, end-to-end, -end, all the way from a customer request or a business strategy or an OKR, all the way to running software. And then you start optimizing around flow time the same way that a manufacturer uh, optimizes around lead time, how long it takes to get from a car order from Tesla to a car being delivered to the customer. Um, and all of a sudden, you can now look at your IT portfolio, your software portfolio, and look, okay, I've got a dead end here. This particular platform, or you know, let's say our trading platform, um, they've not delivered any features. We keep adding developers, and almost no features get delivered have been delivered over the last year. Something's wrong here. Maybe it's not our developers. We should stop yelling at our developers. Maybe we've actually let the technical debt rise so high because we've never invested in it. And companies start asking the right questions. And once they start asking the right questions, they actually have a value-based view on their software portfolio, and all of a sudden can make them decisions that will get them through this. Talk a bit about the the people implications of this, the the way in which teams are constructed differently under this sort of a scenario than uh, than they would have been in a project orientation. Yeah, this is this part is super interesting, and I actually started appreciating the difference. You know, having come from the software open source, and you know, um, I worked at Xerox Park, lived in Silicon Valley for years. Um, uh, it was. So foreign to me when I first started working with large enterprise IT organizations, how they manage people. And, and it, it took me a lot of questions and, and a while to understand. And, and fundamentally, what I realized is, in, and this is back in the late 90s, um, uh, when I moved to San Francisco, they, you know, people were, um, work was brought to people. Like we had teams. This is the start of the agile movement back then. Um, and we had teams and work was brought to teams. And then I started working with our with large customers, large banks, large insurance companies. And I was like, and I realized that the, the organizational structure was completely different. Um, people were brought to work. And I, so I started you know, asking these questions of our customers saying, well, well, so how many projects are your developers working on? It's like, you know, it's like, you know, it's between six and 12. And, and that just blew my mind because this is not, uh, you know, we're not building dams or data centers here, right? You can't, allocate people as resources, so software and digital is such complex and creative work that if you have a person working on more than one project, you've just tanked their productivity. So if you have a person working on 16, I mean, it's just a, you know, it's a, it's just a cool joke because they're basically getting almost nothing done, even if 15 of those 16 are supposed to be in some kind of maintenance mode. So creating product value streams 
requires basically making a product value streams needs to be bigger than a single team, um, but it shouldn't be bigger than a, than a team of teams dynamics. So, you know, at most you've got a hundred people, say 10 teams on a product value stream. Um, and you only ever assign a, a person's only ever working on a single product. Software products are complex. The teams need time to storm and to form. Um, and you actually give them a chance to do that. So you're always bringing work to people, to these stable teams. And of course, you can change your value streams over time. We, For example, at, at TaskUp, we frequently move teams between value streams, depending on what, how we're reallocating, which we do on a quarterly basis, not, not, on, an, you know, not on an annual basis, because that's, that's much too slow in times like this. So stable teams, and you're basically organizing around the natural dynamics of teamwork, rather than something that someone put on, on a two-year breakdown on some, on some project plan. Yeah, very interesting. And as you as you point out, this is uh, in in many ways this is tearing down the traditional silos or needs to tear down the traditional silos of organizations where you've got uh, you know marketing people doing marketing and finance and and, uh, and IT and and et cetera, as opposed to. Uh, bringing people from different disciplines together at the same time, not, not unlike thematically. So you covered agile, you talked about DevOps. Um, these are each topics where there's, uh, as opposed to old ways of doing, doing things where a small group builds something and then throws it over the wall for somebody else to then continue to implement it or release it or, 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 or take care of the operation of it once it's, once it's done. So now that collaboration is happening in the same team, uh, basically through the life cycle of the, of the product. And so in many ways, kind of the, as I say, the, it's creating a permeable filter through the traditional silos of an organization. Is that a fair typification in your mind? Yes, that, that's exactly right, Peter. And the, but there's, there's, a, there's a, I realized that there's kind of a, some pitfalls that organizations were trying to do exactly this. You know, they're trying to do this what's been you know, popularized as a Spotify model, or this notion of feature teams, that we're gonna have only feature teams which are cross-functional teams and um, they're gonna deliver everything. And the problem is that works if you're a 100 or 200 person startup. If you're a large business, if you're a bank, a healthcare company, you know, uh, um, a federal department, it's you actually need those org charts and hierarchies, right? You might be multinational. You need to worry about HR structures and people's promotions and performance appraisals and all, and all sorts of things. So the issue is we need an organizational construct that's larger than a team. The software product, a, a team, you need teams of teams to make software products. You need to be able to have um, these end-to-end value streams exactly as you described, where you've got actually marketing people involved. You've got product marketing people involved, you've got customer-centric people involved in these end-to-end product value streams. Uh, but they need to be bigger than, a, than just a, than a single development team, right? You need to have teams dedicated to different functional roles, but they need to be organized into these value streams. And these value streams need to be measured even though they're cross-functional. Because one thing that's happened with software is the different roles have become in, increasingly specialized. Right, different people use different tools. Um, they can do different things to their work, and this is what happens when when an industry becomes more and more complex. You end up with more and more specialization. So I'll just give you an example. And back to the people thing, right? What, the way that we used to measure at Tasktop our employee engagement is through, was through employee net promoter scores, right? And you know, I, I've just been doing this for for most of the last decade now. 
Um, it was working nicely, but we were realizing we were having problems in, in one part of the organization and none of this was really showing up and then playing up for more scores. And so a few years ago, I said, well, why are we only, and of course I put this in place, but um, why are we, why are we only measuring and playing up for more scores functionally? Like we know how happy our sales people are, our pre-sales people are, our business design people are, our, our developers, testers, operators, and so on. Why don't we measure employee net promoter score for our product value streams? Because that's the main construct with which we deliver value to our customers. And doing that was completely eye-opening, right? We had some people who were just really unhappy on a specific product value stream because they weren't able to innovate. There was a lot of pressure from the business and from customers for them to do more, but they were never really given enough time to invest in the software architecture that we needed to do that. And this was completely hidden when we were only measuring things functionally uh, and was not visible until we measured things in the same way that, that we deliver value is through these product value streams. And so I think this is why it's such a critical change. You'll, you'll need to, you know, org charts are not going away tomorrow. Um, you know, the way that you do finance and, and P&Ls is not going away tomorrow, but you overlay the second structure and you actually model and you measure that. And then the kind of insights that you have on where to double down, where to cut, um, where to fix a bottleneck are, you know, will be tremendous. And are there, uh, are there instances where traditional project work uh, still is necessary? You, you, you sort of, as you were offering uh, a contrast to, to software development, you talked about dam building, for instance. Uh, uh, are, is, are there certain kinds of projects or certain kinds of activities within major organizations that are still likely to have a more traditional project management approach? Oh, absolutely. So, so project management um, is not going away. And the, it's just not for, for measuring value delivery to your customers through software and digital and data. So, for, but any, any new product launch, that's a project, right? You should treat that as a project. Any large new initiative, um, any new partnership you set up or, or region that you move into or expand or move away from, um, those, are, those are all projects. Projects still have their role. Um, but not projects do not, no project plan has ever had a technical debt <laughs> metric on it, right? Um, projects are not for measuring the flow of value delivery. Projects are, as an example, for when a car manufacturer sets up a new plant and a car manufacturer um, plans how to, you know, create, evolve their supply chain and so on. So you still keep doing projects, but they're not how you measure or plan value delivery because they assume such a certainty over the future that they do not allow you to adapt and pivot quickly enough as you learn from your customers and from the market. And when there isn't certainty on the future, they bake in so much risk that you get these insanely bloated budgets with every contingency put in them. Um, again, which is not a, an agile and adaptive way to look at the market versus what software innovators are doing, which is you start delivery, you get the first thing out there, and you actually just add people and funding incrementally as you start seeing results. And of course, every product... Uh, the, the flow framework is, is extremely uh, specific about this. Every product value stream needs a business metric, be that a revenue metric, um, uh, you know, uh, daily active users metric, and so on. And you only keep investing resources in that product value stream if, you, if the metric is going in the right direction. 
you made the point earlier, which I found, found so interesting, uh, that there are banks, for example, that have hundreds of thousands of people in uh, in technology, for uh, as an example, and stark contrast to, you know, uh, the, the the tech giants who do so much. The the Google search example you had of a hundred people, and in, in some ways, these organizations have grown to a size where the work fits the organization, as opposed to the other way around. I know I've taken some chief information officers, for example, just go see startups of 10 or 15 people, and they marvel at how much such a small number of people uh, can can accomplish. And they, they they talk to me about how they need to get like their teams to come see this because there's, with every new effort, every new initiative, every new launch, their continued requests for, you know, I need 10 or 15 or 50 more people to do this. Uh, but a lot of what you're describing is finding those ways to be a lot more efficient with the resources you have. Is that, is that fair, Mick? Exactly. Exactly. And except there's this, you know, I think it, it, it is really important and those activities that you're doing to, to, to show uh, today's leaders, CIOs, that, that there is a better way. I think it's, it, it, it's such a critical activity and, and especially at this time. And hopefully, um, hopefully they have been learning from, from what you're doing. Um, and then the one thing I've realized, you know, in trying to do some of the same, um, to be careful about is that they are not a startup. They, they have to make, they have to directionally head into that direction, in, into that much more innovative, um, people-oriented and flow-oriented way of delivering value within their existing corporate structures. So, um, and, and this is where I actually think the tech giants are, you know, we need to help these organizations both look to, to tech companies and startups, but also to tech giants, right? We, you know, we can learn a lot from how Amazon and companies like Amazon and Microsoft, who I think are you know, some of the you know, foremost software innovators in terms of managing billion line code bases. Because in the end, this is, you know, this, this is the, the matching software at scale is, is really about getting to the point where you can effectively manage at a business level, you know, basically 100 million to billion line code bases. Um, which those two companies do extremely well. Uh, so looking at the way that they've actually structured internally between, and this is, of course, the full framework is based on this, um, between these teams that they've got, organized into product value streams, and then managed in this, in, in this customer-centric customer and end-to-end and, and -end way and, and completely cross-functionally. So um, I think it's, it's really the trick is it's, it's to do what the startups are doing at scale. That's great. Well, Mick Kirsten, uh, thank you so much for joining me on Technovation today. Uh, Mick's book is Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Peter. It was great talking to you. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me next week when my guest will be Kevin Scott, the Chief Technology Officer and Executive Vice President of Technology and Research at Microsoft.